Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Vivek Shreya, a multimedia polymath. She's a playwright, she's an actor, she's a musician, she's an author, and now she's a producer with How to Fail as a Pop Star, a web series based on her own book and stage show premiering this Friday, October 13th on CBC Gem. It's an autobiographical comedy drama about a young kid named Vivek who dreams of pop star success, and you'll like it. Vivek picked The Bodyguard, the 1992 blockbuster that paired Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston in her movie debut for a thriller about a super famous singer who hires the best protection in the business and discovers he has only three rules. Never let them out of your sight, never let your guard down, never fall in love. And you'll never guess what happens. Or maybe you will. This is someone else's movie. I'll admit I haven't seen the movie for a long time and I was like, should I rewatch it? And I was like, no, like nostalgia and memory is such an interesting thing to me, like what we remember. So I, I, I'm leaning in that direction, if that's okay. Absolutely, yeah. In fact, we can even start from there. That's a, that's a, a terrific way in. Um, but the first question is always the same, which is why? So what made you choose The Bodyguard? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I'm in the midst of getting ready for my show to come out, um, How to Fail as a Pop Star. And so the bodyguard ends up coming front of mind or is front of mind for me because um, I often credit the bodyguard, particularly the soundtrack, um, as being what brought me into the world of pop music. I, you know, I grew up listening to my parents like Bollywood and Indian devotional music and stuff, which is beautiful. Um, but it was hearing Whitney's cover of I Will Always Love You in the deep winter of Edmonton that just, I don't know, it just, it did something for me. And I think part of it is that like, you know, Indian music is about hitting as many notes in the shortest amount of time as possible. So it's like, ah, and, you know, certainly like R&B music has the same quality. And so I think it was the first time I was exposed to something in pop music that felt oddly familiar um, also like so much of like Indian, like devotional music is so earnest, you know, and I will always love you is just, it's such an earnest, you know, power, power ballad, you know, nineties power ballads are all about being earnest. So I think when I heard that song, um, I think it was one of those things that like really planted the seed for me, um, of like what I would love to do as an artist, like to have that kind of impact with my voice, but also it really opened the world of pop music to me as a music listener, because after I listened to that, I was like, so curious to hear more. And so I got into Mariah Carey and like, you know, other like nineties R and B like Mary J Blige and stuff. So yeah, I just, I feel like I owe Whitney Houston, the bodyguard, the bodyguard soundtrack a lot. (laughs) So if it was the soundtrack that got you in, when did you see the film? When did you find to, when did you get to the movie? So yeah, this was one of those weird things, right? Because soundtrack songs, especially in the nineties, sometimes had like a bigger presence in the movie, right? Like I'm thinking of like, you know, a lot of Celine Dion's like soundtrack songs as well, like where it's like that, it's like it's its own form of like media. It's like almost, it's connected to the movie, but it's almost its own thing. And I saw the Bodyguard movie for the first time with my dad on a plane. I think I was going to India and I really, I have a strong memory of the scene where Kevin Costner, um, who plays the Bodyguard and Wayne Houston are, I think at his house. And for some reason he has samurai swords on the wall. Yeah. And like, there's some weird scene where like her scarf flies up in the air and like it falls on the samurai sword and cuts in half. And then suddenly they're in bed, except what's happening for me is that I'm on the airplane. 
a packed airplane going to India. And my dad has like put a, a, a pillow over my face. <laughs> you know, they were very conservative. And so, you know, presumably this was some sort of like raunchy sex scene. And so for the next, like, I don't know, three minutes, I have a, a pillow over my face. And it made me very curious to watch the movie again, because of course, when your parents prevent you from watching something, you just want to know what it is. And so I watched it again and being like, this was very tame. Like they're just lying there in bed, having a conversation, like actually nothing happens. But um, yeah, that was my first memory of watching the bodyguard <laughs> was that I missed the sex scene. That wasn't a sex scene. Yeah. Such as it was. That's fascinating. I mean, it is true, right? Like the second you tell someone they can't see something, it, not only do you want to see it, but your, your brain starts filling in the that most was. explicit possible things that you can imagine. Right. And yeah, the bodyguard is such a uniquely chaste film. Yes. It's so weirdly, I mean, I, I, the story behind it is, how familiar are you with this story? Because it's amazing. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote, co-wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark and Empire and uh, directed The Big Chill and launched his own career as a, uh, as a filmmaker in the 80s, wrote it years earlier for Steve oh. McQueen. Oh, geez, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think it was supposed to be Steve McQueen and Diana Ross. I'm not so sure about Diana Ross's casting. That's a name I heard thrown around it way back when in all the stories about how the film came about. But it sat on a shelf forever. It was not one of the films he sold. But it's this weird celebrity package that came out of Warner Brothers at this window in time where they were just looking to... It was perceived as this breakout film for Whitney Houston, but it was also this really odd project for Costner because it was coming right after Dances with Wolves, which won him the Oscars. And so here he is making this film where he's playing someone who almost has no personality by choice. Like oh. it's an it's an interesting role for him because he was coming right out of this this whole like this this breakout thing that happened in the late eighties with Bull Durham and the Untouchables and, yeah. and No Way Out, where he was the sex man. In, in whatever role he was playing. And here he just refused to do any of that stuff. And it's, I thought it was really fascinating. It's almost as though he's trying to play it the way McQueen would have played it, like the Steve McQueen right, right, right. in his memory. But it's such a weird patchwork fit where you can just tell all the pieces are sort of coming from other places. Totally. And then so right in the middle of all of it is Whitney Houston singing and none of that matters, right? Like the music no, exactly. sequences are incredible. Exactly. Yeah. I heard that it was his idea i could be wrong about this it was his idea to have i will always love you start a acapella um which i actually didn't even remember like it's so weird because in my mind because it's such a big song the production in my mind feels so big but like it actually is i i believe it opens like with just her singing which is like so rare to hear in pop music right you never just hear a vocalist on on their own so um yeah and i i read that she, he had a huge part in her casting as well. But yeah, anyways, so interesting. What a strange movie. And yet, like, I think it's like considered the best selling soundtrack of all time. And the movie I think did really well as well is my understanding. And it was huge. Yeah. Um, it was, oh yeah. I just double checked the numbers here. So it shot on a $25 million budget, but it made 411 million globally, wow. which uh, is pretty good for return on investment. Um, yeah, it was the huge Thanksgiving release for 1992 in the States and, and exploded everywhere. The album was the biggest selling, here we go, the Bodyguard original soundtrack was the biggest selling soundtrack of all time and best selling album by a female artist of all time. Yeah. Uh, 45 million copies sold worldwide. I think Titanic ultimately surpassed it. Okay. 
but it might still be. I don't know. I don't follow that stuff that closely. Um, I'm more of a I'm more of a background movie nerd than a background soundtrack nerd. I have to admit. For me, I just. I miss the art of the soundtrack. Like I think for me as an artist, I'm so curious and fascinated by the marriage between audio and video. And like, I I think it it used to be done so smartly and packaged so well in the nineties. And now I feel like music's a bit like, I think music rights are just so expensive and it's so cumbersome that like things are just like slapped together a little bit and they don't have the same kind of like, here is something that it's its own thing, but it's also connected to another thing. Like I just, you know, yeah, <laughs> I, I miss that as a '90s kid. No, I totally get that. The lost art of curation, right? Like Tarantino exactly. is probably the last filmmaker who's really identified with putting soundtracks together. And maybe oh. Baz Luhrmann, but his stuff tends towards yeah, the more totally. original. Um, I wonder if it's. I mean, I'm assuming it's streaming, right? Like Spotify and everything else have just destroyed the concept of carrying a soundtrack around and. But well, also, again, I think music rights are just, again, this is something I'm learning from the show is just like, it's so expensive to to get songs. And I think a big part of that is now one of the only ways for musicians to make music is through sync and placements, right? So it's like music fees are astronomical in that one area. So I, it's funny watching shows like on Netflix that are like Love is Blind or whatever, where it's so clear that the music is like just created for that moment where it's like... Oh no, we broke up. And that's like it. And that's the song. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to like paying thousands of dollars for some Taylor Swift broke up breakup song. It's like might as well just create these like jingle moments, you know? So yeah. <laughs> I mean, that can almost work for especially for reality television where you can just sort of push sure. the audience in any direction sure. you want. Sure. <laughs> manipulation and self-awareness is part of it. But when I was explaining to people at the time that that amazing Whitney Houston song was actually sung by Dolly Parton in the best little whorehouse in Texas, I got blank stares, which was like, it was only 10 years earlier. Um, and the only reason I was explaining it to people was because they kept asking why it wasn't nominated for best original song at the Oscars. And it's like, well, right. Dolly Parton wrote it years ago. Yeah. And that's, there's even a scene in the, the movie where they talk about that, right? They're slow yeah. dancing and they, you know, it's a song that they hear and yeah. Yeah. It's a cover within the world of the film and people didn't that's, like, they yeah. just didn't want to accept it. It's like, no, no, no that's there's, Whitney's song. There's. I mean, even the music sequences in the show, like I remember um, her performance of queen of the night, you know, with that like amazing silver, outfit uh god the designer's name oh my god i'm gonna go to hell for this but like i saw a beautiful exhibit of his in um new york actually this summer um no worries it'll come back to you we can just pick it up and it'll yeah sorry you'll just blurt it out (laughs) five seconds later that's how it always goes yeah no it just i I remember just it being like something i'd never seen before because it had that sci-fi element with like the metal and you know just the energy she gave and I don't know. I mean, it's hard. I want, always want to be careful about over projecting onto my childhood, but I also feel like there was something about the songs in that soundtrack, like um, I'm Every Woman and Queen of the Night that were like maybe early trans anthems for me. Like I think of myself as being a brown kid in Edmonton, like belting those songs out. And I'm like, and they, I do think that they allowed me to tap into a certain kind of femininity that I couldn't find in other pop music in, in the same way. And so yeah, I, again, I don't want to over-project onto myself, but they, they do feel like, yeah, oddly, like early trans anthems. <laughs> I mean, certainly, it's the stuff you connected to regardless, right? Like, so it becomes an anthem. Totally, totally. 
Yeah. And I remember singing that song and like not feeling trans per se, or not feeling like I was in the wrong body or any of that stuff, but like singing, I'm every woman or I'm, you know, I've got the stuff that you want. Like, it's just like, it's such a, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's such a like unabashed, confident, you know, and it kind of, it was cool. It was like the same time. Um, one of the things that I loved about that moment in R and B music as well. So there was a lot of like more ele- like electric guitars. Uh, again, I don't know how much of a big like music fan you are, but like free your mind by En Vogue came out at that same time. And it had like, you know, free your mind. And it had like really loud electric guitars on it. And there was like this moment of electric guitars in pop R and B music. That was like really cool. And like, I feel like 1992, 93, 91. And I feel like queen of the night fell in that same camp. <laughs> It does. I mean, oh, it's okay. Moogly. Am I saying that name right? Moogly. Oh, Cherry Moogler. Yeah, I feel like that's the designer. Like, let's just confirm here. Well, anyways, I'm almost 100% certain. But anyways, we again, we can return to this. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, so here it is. Um, Susan Nininger or Nininger was the costume designer, but she said that the film, the outfit was inspired by the movie Metropolis and the breastplates that Cherry Moogler made at Ooh, the time. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I knew there was some sort of Moogler like connection. Um, so, anyways, yeah, loved, loved that, loved that sequence. You know, the thing I remember shocking me about the bodyguard. I mean, this is a spoiler. Are we allowed to give away spoilers on this? It's thirty years old. I think we can. <laughs> the betrayal, the sister betrayal. Oh my god! I remember just like gasping, just being like shocked by that. I mean, I just, I mean, now I feel like I would have seen it coming, but at the time, I remember just being like. This is really bad. This is really, really bad. <laughs> I also have a sibling and like, you know, our relationship has been very complicated. And I was like, would he do this to me? <laughs> I mean, if you were a massive star and he was in the shadow, maybe. I mean, it's maybe. just, it's such a lurid film noir kind of angle, right? Like it's, now it's on every other episode of CSI or whatever, but it, but yes, yeah, exactly. at the time it was probably shocking for a lot of people. <laughs> It's a, I mean, on, yeah, on its face, it is such a silly movie. The, um, the idea, you know, like the, the, one of his rules is never fall in love. It's like, really? How often does that come up? As a bodyguard? <laughs> really? But you know, one of the things I think that they did really well is that they don't end up together. Like that actually feels very anti-Hollywood. Like it actually stuns me that like, yeah, like again, now that I'm in this world a little bit more, I feel like there's such a pressure, like in books, you can have a more nuanced ending, but I find in like TV and movies, it's like, we have to give the audience what they want. And I, I actually think it was kind of like for a movie that's like kind of corny, like kind of doesn't make sense in some ways, kind of feels like it was put together by Hollywood. It's like, I feel like the fact that they don't end up together is like a pretty bold move, you know, for a big Hollywood, you know, yeah. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. This week, I wrote about Loki, Prey, and the Star Trek series Picard and Prodigy getting physical releases, and I reviewed the new editions of Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, Cross of Iron, and Carlito's Way. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Blue Sky account. You like reading about movies? I like writing about them. Come check it out. Like the audience wanting them to, to get together is the reason they can't. 
in a weird way. Like it's it's a really savvy screenwriting angle because it gives you a, a bittersweet ending where they will, you know, they've changed each other forever and they'll always carry each other in their hearts and she'll always sing that song about him. Right. But he has his job and also no emotions. So he can't really give her what she needs. It's like, in a weird way, I do think that's why Costner's perfect because right. he can be... He's not planned. Like he's earnest in a way that people think is blandness. He's got this Midwestern straightness, like like a like straight spinal ramrod thing going on. I don't know how best how to describe it, but it's like it's the Gary. It's the reason he's always compared to Gary Cooper because he is so square. Um, yeah. And I've I've met him and interviewed him, and he is absolutely that person. And when he plays villains occasionally, it's an interesting fit because there is some sort of thing in the back of our brains going, well, no one can really be that guy. Like there's gotta be something that he's hiding, but it makes him have a secret or it makes him feel like he's withholding something. And it's really interesting, especially when he's opposite somebody like Houston, who wasn't, and I don't mean this as an insult, she wasn't a skilled enough actor. She was a performer. She couldn't hold everything back the way he can. So she is wide open and he is giving almost nothing back so that eventually when he does crack and start to show a little smile or a little affection, it feels like she's won him over. And it's like, it's a remarkable technical balance between the two of them. And, you know, we can all think about movies with actors who had no chemistry. Um, And here there's this really weird version of attraction where Costner is not giving her anything. And eventually just sort of wakes up to her and she just is is beaming at him and existing at him the whole time. So it's this unlikely destabilized relationship picture in the middle of a thriller, in the middle of a drama about a bodyguard, which was apparently also borrowed from heavily from Kurosawa's Yojimbo, which is why the samurai swords are around. It's it's oh. it's Kasdan's nod to what he stole. Um from from Japanese cinema and an, and an acknowledged classic, and I think that's the other reason people were so quick to to make fun of it mm. because it's honest about its intentions and its um, and its obligations in a weird way. Like it is ticking off the boxes of a melodrama and a thriller and a romance, but it's doing them in this kind of very self-aware, silly way where, you know, Hollywood isn't really like this. It's not quite so rampantly silly and sleazy, although it probably is. I just haven't been in those corners yet, (laughs) but it's what people think, right? Like it's a, it's a version of, it's an exaggerated version of reality and it's very, very silly. And, and on that, like at that level, Frank Farmer's discomfort in it actually reads like, Kevin Costner just feels like an outsider when he's coming off Dances with Wolves and is actually probably one of the most powerful people in Hollywood at that moment. And he chose to make this film so he could not be, which I, I kind of find fascinating. Yeah, no, I think the other thing I read about it too, I, and again, I don't know if I'm getting this right, is that like it was very unique in terms of having a movie that big that was a romance that was... Um, like biracial or like interracial. It was huge at the time. It was a very big deal. Yeah. Like that. And like, I was, I, as we were talking, I was like trying to rack my brain to think of like other movies on that level where it was like, you know, um, like biracial or interracial. And I like, I couldn't really think of that many, you know, like. Uh, at the time. No. And I'm sure people are listening and screaming like there's this, there's this. <laughs> this yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was a huge deal at the time for, um, for Costner specifically, for some weird reason, 
and for Warner Brothers and and probably just because this is the tail end of the Bush era and America was probably at its most conservative. Right. For, you know, since the 50s. And now, of course, I'm sure it's far, far worse. But at least in terms of racial representation, things are a little better in entertainment. But yeah, no, it, it was it was considered a big deal that Whitney Houston was cast, which is weird because, you know, the most important thing in Hollywood has always been bankability and and you know marquee value and Whitney Houston is one of the biggest names on the planet so why wouldn't you cast her against anybody in a movie where she wants to be involved yeah totally it's also interesting to me that like after that movie she sort of like her career kind of goes more into movies and she does have a bit of success right like a lot of like musicians who go down that route don't always have I mean, like Madonna, who's doing it at the time, didn't really have that kind of success, but she goes on to make like Waiting to Exhale after, which also has like its own soundtrack moment. And mm-hmm. then like The Preacher's Wife, which also has its own soundtrack moment. Like, I really feel like she just like really found um, a groove in in like movies, which was like, I don't know, as a fan, really exciting to like watch that. Because like, I actually, as like a 90s kid, I wasn't really familiar with Whitney before, like in the 80s when she was like, you know, massive. So mm-hmm. for me, it was like, Oh, here's this new actress who also sings. <laughs> Interesting. Because, yeah, I think the reason she could succeed where Madonna couldn't was because Madonna never really stopped being Madonna. Totally. And, totally. you know, she was in, I think, what was her, her biggest hits were probably Dick Tracy and A League of Their Own. And, and exactly. she's not the lead in either of those. Exactly. Um, and she could be a pretty good actor in the service of a story, but generally the projects were built around her. Whereas, yeah, I think you're right. I think Houston just tried to act and wanted to be, you know, doing that and disappearing into roles rather than being Whitney Houston in a movie. I also feel like Madonna was supposed to be in The Bodyguard. Am I making this up? I mean, maybe she was one of the names floated. I'm I'm not, (laughs) I'm not aware, but. Oh, it was, okay. Here's the reason I keep thinking it was Diana Ross. It was going to be Diana Ross and Ryan O'Neill in 1978. Oh, wow. Directed by John Borman. Oh, wow. Which would have been really interesting, especially for Borman in that era, because he was coming off of, you know, Zardoz and Exorcist 2 and a bunch of weird stuff where he would, this would clearly have been his way back into normal narrative cinema. Uh, and it just, it just never happened. But Costner read the script when he was working on Silverado with Kasdan in 85. Okay. And they decided to work together. And then it took them another six or seven years to to get to the point where Costner was considered bankable enough. Huh. But uh, Madonna is not mentioned anywhere in the casting thing. According to this, Costner's announcement was that it would be Houston in 1991. Yeah, but what Madonna didn't know that was that Costner had been there on a mission. He was in time at that time in talks with the film company about a new movie called The Bodyguard, and he was one of the executive producers, and he was seriously considering the possibility of casting Madonna in the all-important role. Okay, so have you ever seen Truth or Dare? You were about to say Truth or Dare. Yeah, Yeah. I remember that scene. Yeah, exactly. So apparently that's what he was there for, like when he was like, he calls the show neat. I mean, that's what this, I don't know. I don't know how legitimate this uh, outlet is. <laughs> one outlet is saying. <laughs> I mean, I could believe that her I reaction. That, that actually makes reason. sense, right? I mean, yeah. she's a singer and, you know. Yeah. And her reaction to him, if he saw the documentary in time, would probably have killed the deal. Uh, and it's, <laughs> but once again, like that's an example of somebody not being able to handle the fact that Kevin Costner doesn't seem to have layers and is the guy he pretends like he's not pretending that's who he really is. 
Uh, I and he's a singer too, which is the other really weird. You know, he has a band, right? Oster is a singer. Yeah, people forgot this. He released a couple of albums in the '90s because everybody could, right? Any any actor. I, I don't album. know this. I don't no. think I ever knew this. I have seen him perform. Um, he, oh man, he brought his band to the Phoenix in 2008 or 2009, whenever this movie Swing Vote came out. And wow. he, he tied the press tour for that film to Playdates, which is sort of brilliant. And, you know, when Kevin Costner casually says, hey, come on down to the show, I'll put you on the list. It's like, you say yes. Yeah, of course. Because whatever happens, you're going to see this fascinating experience. Totally. And he's not the strongest singer, but he's one of those guys who... Uh, you know, success has allowed him to put a session band together that is phenomenal. So his band are stone pros. They are really having fun. They're being obviously like everybody's being paid well. Nobody's worried about the next gig. They're all just there to enjoy themselves. And he seems to invite the audience into that experience. So I watched him do the entire Mr. Tambourine Man, like the whole eight minute song. And he was pretty happy. He was having a great time and he was pretty good. But what was really fascinating were the women around me. And it was primarily, I would say, 85 to 90% women of a certain age, right. um, probably in their mid, mid to late 40s, who had been in their mid to late 20s when he broke. And they were screaming, so they were screaming names of movies at him like they were song requests. Dances with Wolves! <laughs> he was. <laughs> he was so polite about it. He was so courteous. He would like he would just hold the mic and look down at the girl and go, "Yeah, I like that movie." And they would scream, and it was the weirdest thing. I've never been in a space like that before. Um, it was like that's that's somehow even more endearing than I thought it was going to be because you know I'm cynical as hell. I'm dead inside and. <laughs> And then you see this and it's just like, no, he's really, he loves this. This is what he wants to do. The acting is sort of the secondary thing almost. Yeah. Yeah. But that makes sense. If you're going to go see an actor and you're not familiar with their music, like, yeah, of course you would scream their, their filmography. To them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that he actually has original songs now that I think oh. about it. I, I don't remember what other songs he played, but the Mr. Tambourine one was the one where it's just like, oh yeah, he really loves this song. And this is his, this is his little moment where he gets to do it in front of an audience. And yeah, of course not. I'm not going to hold that against him. We know what he did after the bodyguard. Um, I remember following her career, but like, I don't actually remember like. Costner yeah. in general. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, I think the next thing he would have done was probably Eastwood's film, A Perfect World, where he played a villain. Oh. Okay. Um, and then directed The Postman a few years after that. And Waterworld, of course, is in between those two. Right. He yeah. was, yeah, he was one of those stars, those incredibly bankable stars who really only works in a specific range. Mm -hmm. And I think as he's gotten older, the whole Yellowstone thing has given him this other, this, this new career, this other act, third act, I guess. <laughs> uh, first act is actor, second act is director. Third act is whatever you become when you're pushing into, you know, like Paramount Plus territory or, yeah, or whatever yeah. it is where he's on shows that everybody's parents watch. Right. I find him fascinating. Oh, and of course he's in The Man of Steel. Like he played Jonathan Kent in, in Zack Snyder's Superman movie, which introduced him to a whole other level of... of I don't remember that. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that was 10 years ago now. But um, it's this weird place that he is always Kevin Costner, right? Like he is one of the last movie stars 
he maybe can't open a film, but he will show up and do the thing he does. And that's yeah. what you want. Yeah. It's funny to hear your take on him as an actor in the bodyguard, because like, I know what you're saying. Like he is stiff, but I don't remember thinking again, like maybe it's like, I wasn't super familiar. Like I had seen dances with wolves and also I'm coming into this, like as like a teenager, but like, I remember being really into Kevin Costner and the bodyguard. Like I was like really into both of them. I, I thought that like their whole connection, their story, like I found it very like hot, you know, like I felt like, you know, when he comes and he like, you know, picks her up and takes her out and saves her. Like, it's like, you know, I, I bought it, you know? And in fact, I actually liked him more in that movie, I think than, than the early movies. Like I think I'd seen some of the early movies and I, didn't get the big deal, but in that movie, you know, he's like always wearing a tie and he's got his like arms and whatnot. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, so it's interesting. Cause like, yes, it's stiff, but to me, it's like, it's, it's just enough, you know? Right. Somewhere <laughs> in the back of your mind, you're thinking I could get him. I could change him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The secret of Kevin Costner. Yeah, exactly. Just, it's just be mysterious. The movie like taken up now, right? Like, is it? Did, did you say it's like it had a thirty year anniversary? I think it got like a Broadway like remount or something. And yeah, yeah. I mean, IP, right? Everything eventually becomes a yeah. Broadway jukebox musical. But I can totally see this one working because it is such a simple, clear story. There's not a lot going on besides the like the the expanse of the of the film is part of the world. But really, it's only about four or five characters. There's not a, it does not have a big uh, cast with a lot of moving parts. You could pare it down and make it, I mean, you could make it a really intimate stage show and never show the performances. But of course, that's what people want to see. Yes. I mean, I, I don't know if I can say this, but I, I walked out. <laughs> I really did not enjoy it. I don't know. And I think, I don't know if I got this right, but like, I feel like they tried to like hybridize it with Whitney's discography. Like, I feel like it was like, the bodyguard, but also Whitney Houston songs. Oh, I can sort of see I remember, that. Like, like I think during intermission, I was like, I, I can't do this. Like, this is just, I don't know. The bodyguard to me, like, especially the music, but also the film, like there's something about it that feels precious. I don't know. I just, I'm like, <laughs> that's why it's interesting to hear you talk about it, like about people like making fun of it or like, you know, not taking it lightly or I mean, taking it lightly or whatever, because in my mind, it's like a serious <laughs> Yeah. This this is what I'm saying about giving people what they need rather than what they want, I guess. Although I don't know, yeah. I don't know that Whitney Houston's music really I mean, I suppose if she's just singing it in performance, it doesn't really matter. But then if you're putting the Whitney Houston tracks into the bodyguard, then aren't you just making it really, really clear that you're not seeing Whitney Houston, that the woman on stage just cannot be her? That's exactly it. I was like, well, this is not doing justice to her legacy. Like, I, I don't know. Just, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't for me. Well, it's okay. It's over now. I do want to, I did want to point out though, like we've, we've barely talked about the thriller aspects of the film at all, which yes, I think is, thriller. Yeah. well, I think it's fascinating because it's not what people remember, right? Like everybody talks about the romance, but it is, it was marketed as a whodunit, as a mystery, as a thriller, who is trying to kill this person. And yeah, as you pointed out, it's, it's kind of irrelevant. 
It's true. Although I do, again, another vivid memory for me of the film is like the slow cutting of the letters, the chain mail letters. Yeah. It's just like, I don't, I think that was one of the first times I saw something like that. I remember being very disturbed. So I think that's why also when we find out that it's the sister, it was like even more upsetting because we'd seen these like hands cut out. And of course you make all kinds of assumptions of like what kind of like, you know, stalker guy this is, but the fact that it's like his, her own blood relative, like it was just was too much for me but yes it was i remember very much remembering like the like the the letters that were made <laughs> and the um there's sort of a lurid aspect to that right totally. like it's it's pushing it's pushing the thriller into sort of purplish almost giallo totally giallo is yellow but still the uh the sense that you're seeing something and maybe that's the reason people thought it was silly because you are never really in the fevered mind of the kidnapper because that's not what it's about or the stalker. It's true. It's just a red herring and it's there to, it's only there to complicate their love. Yes. But I mean, oddly, in a lot of ways, the movie is, I think, really about her and her sister. Like, you know, I think that's the second love story in that that movie, right? It's like, obviously, Kevin and, and Whitney or whatever, Frank Farmer and what's her name again? Oh, Rachel Marin, which Rachel is the Marin. most, the most generic her? name yeah. for... But I really feel like, I mean, I even remember, is it the scene they're like, shh, one of them singing outside and then the other one comes, like, is it the sister singing by herself? And then Whitney shows up and starts like singing with her and you can't tell if it's like going well or if they're kind of competing with each other. Like, I don't know. I find sibling relationships really interesting because again, I have a close sibling. So, um, but yeah, I feel like their storyline is so fascinating to me too. Yeah, it's I. It doesn't get enough attention because the movie is just yeah. constantly veering back to the Frank. I mean, he's the oh. title character, but yeah, it's. I mean, I wonder if you could build that out for the the stage version. Maybe there's a better way to do it that way. Yeah, so we've given yeah. them the space. Yeah, yeah, because we don't like. I don't know. Like, I mean, sibling rival is a real thing, but like. I, I don't know. I think for me, it was like one of the first times I was really exposed to a, a story that like showed that in a way, like it's not something that like ever, like I'm trying to think of like other movies where like that really takes the front seat. Um, mm. Yeah. I don't know. Anyways. Once I found out that it was a sister though, I actually felt deeply sympathetic for the sister. Like I was like very pro Rachel Marin. And I was like, who is this person? And then when I thought of the sister, I was like, oh man, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> poor Nikki. Yeah, poor no, Nikki. Nikki does not get enough credit. And yet, of course, you know, she gets killed. They go to the Oscars anyway. It's, it's the movie where the movie is brushing her aside pretty quickly yes. too, which also feels kind of mean. Yes. Yeah. Didn't get nominated for an Oscar for the song? Uh, not for, not for, I will always love you. Cause it wasn't eligible, but there were two others that were, um, was well, I, have Queen, uh, I have nothing in, it wasn't queen of the night. It was the other one. Run to you. Yes. Run to you. And I have nothing. I don't think either of them won though. Oh, wow. I should have done all this research. Yeah, I'm sorry. I should have too. <laughs> no. Oh no. Of course they lost. They both lost to a whole new world from Aladdin, which also isn't the best song from Aladdin. A whole new world. Wow. Yeah. Shocking. Jeez. Oh, you don't go up against uh, the Disney machine. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. But yeah, it is weird, isn't it? I, I'm sure. Well, actually, I Will Always Love You wasn't even nominated in 82, was it? Oh, wow. For the best little horse. It seems like a weird omission because I'm pretty sure that was an original song written for that movie. Oh, 
Okay. Um, I'm trying, I've been trying to figure out how to, to connect, or if there's a way, usually what I do at the end of the, the episode is connect the film you've chosen to the work that you're making. And it's funny, there, there doesn't seem to be a real through line between the bodyguard and uh, how to fail as a pop star. That's what you think. (laughs) I mean, for me, like the big through line is like, again, just thinking of this movie as being one of the first times I was really exposed to, I mean, to use your word, like really amazing curation between audio and visual and, you know, pop star. I think when you're a child or when you're a teenager, I don't know if you feel this way, but it's like almost like the things that inspire you imprint upon you at a very young age. And I think there's been a part of me that's been constantly trying to recreate this sort of like idea of a soundtrack and a show, a show like, you know, like a couple of years ago I did, a book about the Toronto music industry and I made like a soundtrack for it and how to fail as a pop star, you know, really feels like the closest I've gotten at realizing my own bodyguard. I mean, plot wise, it's not the same story wise. It's not the same, but I think, you know, just creating a show that has an integral um, like musical component to it. Um, and like, you know, certainly being the person at the forefront singing those songs, you know, like I, another great example for me is Magnolia. I always like, you know, that's like on my vision board is like, I, I mean, Amy Mann's not in the movie, but she's such a big part of the fabric of that movie. Like that movie doesn't exist without Amy Mann's songs. And in the same way, the bodyguard doesn't exist without the songs. And I think for me, like, yeah, it's just like, it's a source of constant inspiration. So I feel really excited because in some ways, yeah, like I said, pop star feels like the first, the closest I've gotten to realizing that sort of vision. <laughs> And I, I've only, I admit, I've only been able to see the first three episodes of Popstar, but the um, the sense of someone chasing a spotlight they don't understand. Totally. That seems to be wrapped totally. up in there as well. Totally, totally. And I mean, maybe this is again doing too much projecting, but one of the things I've tried to push back about a lot with Popstar is I think that there's a way in which Popstardom is seen as trivial. Like a, the pursuit of Popstardom isn't like, you know, trying to create a building or cure a virus or whatever. But I think when you're a queer brown kid in, in a small city, like pop music is, is your bodyguard. It is the thing that saves you. It is the thing that like can, can carry you away. So, I mean, might be pushing the metaphor a little bit here, but like, yeah, I really feel like that, like pop music is, is my bodyguard. So (laughs) there we go. (laughs) Nicely done. (laughs) Thank you. My thanks to Vivek Shreya, whose new series How to Fail as a Pop Star starts streaming on CBC Gem this Friday, October 13th. Thanks also to Meg Campbell. She knows what she did. You can find Vivek on Twitter at Vivek Shreya, all one word, and you can find The Bodyguard on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment and streaming on Pluto TV in the US and Crave in Canada. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD services. And after sitting on the fence for way too long, I'm officially on Blue Sky. You can find me there at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year, if you like it, or the show in general, say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, 
watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.